Well, we come this week to the last of our studies in uh, Elijah and Elisha. We started this way back in, in the middle of COVID when we kind of first started with the online worship. Uh, I was actually going to do a series on Song of Solomon at that time, and I just didn't feel like the right thing to do. Um, I've really enjoyed this series. I, I feel like I've grown a lot from it. A lot of these were stories that I sort of knew, but I don't know that I'd ever really plumbed the depths of them. I'm not sure that we still have plumbed the depths depths of them, but I, I certainly have grown and been encouraged. It seems like a, a word for our time. Uh, we think about a polytheistic culture. You think about um, uh, just the, the idolatries that exist and uh, what does it mean to stand for the Lord in the midst of troubled times? It, it just seems like it's appropriate. Uh, today, I, in, all throughout, has always been in focus, but just the exile. You know, when Second Kings, First and Second Kings, Chronicles, these were written for the people that were in exile because of the sins of their fathers. So they were listening to these, the original audience. They were in Babylon or Assyria or wherever they were in exile, and they were hearing these stories, and, and they were getting information on why their lives were the way that they were. Like, why are we in exile? And then they were also getting pointed to what their hope is. And very, very clearly the case here with this passage, especially as uh, the author goes back to the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He brings them in verse 21, as you're going to hear, I'm sorry, verse 23, he brings them up to uh, the point that they are at the very moment. And he's helping them know that they're not lost forever. You know, that was the, the question that the prophet Micah asked. Will you retain your anger forever? I remember one time, uh, one of my kids, and this is the advantage of having eight kids, you only have a 12.5% chance of guessing which one it is. Uh, but one of the kids was having a pang of conscience over something that they had done. So they like handed me this note as I was walking out the door saying, hey, I'm, I'm really sorry about this. I know I shouldn't have done this, but I did it. Will you ever be able to forgive me? And of course, you know, of course that we will forgive. And, and our Heavenly Father is the same way, but we, we often feel like that, like God, are you always going to be angry with us? Is there any hope as we go forward? Maybe a more adult way to put that are, are these words from Ann Voskamp. Some of you know her through her writings. Uh, she says, I, I am the woman with secrets. She doesn't know how to speak. With sins that are hidden like black mold growing up the side of her soul who's ached with the silent suffering and feels shattered at the base of her crumbling foundations and knows what it means to be lost, not quite knowing how to rebuild. I'm the woman whose machete tongue has torn a strip off her kids' backsides. I'm the friend who's slapped up cold and guarded walls to protect her heart at the cost of anyone else's heart. I'm the woman who's been more interested in self-preservation than anyone else's situation. I'm the mom whose kid right now seems bent on a bit of self-destruction and who can't stop my own torrid affair with guilt over this. 
I'm the wife whose neck can stiffen like an unwilling pillar of salt, who's fallen and broken herself and is desperate for someone to put her back together again. I think this is where we come into contact or we come into solidarity with that exiled community. Will anybody ever come and put us back together again? Is there, is there, any, is there any hope? Is there any way that there can be mercy and life and joy even in the middle of exile. And that's why these uh, stories are so important. And especially this last one here, the death of Elisha. Um, Let me read it for you. You can find it in 2 Kings 13, starting in verse 14. It's the passage that's printed for you in your bulletin. When Elisha had fallen sick with the illness to which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. And so he took a bow and arrows, and then he said to the king of Israel, Draw the bow. And he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands upon the king's hands, and he said, Open the window eastward. And he opened it. And then Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. And he said, The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria. For you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. And then Elisha said, Take the arrows. And the king took them. And he said to the king of Israel, Strike the ground with them. And he struck the ground three times. And he stopped. And then the man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you had made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. And so so Elisha died, and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, one of these marauding bands was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, uh, he revived and he stood on his feet. Now Hatziel, verse 22 sort of goes back a little bit. Now Hatziel, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. Jehoahaz is Joash's father. But the Lord was gracious to them, and this is our key verse for this morning. The Lord was gracious to them, had compassion on them, and had turned toward them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence until now or until uh, or up to this present moment. When Hatziel, king of Syria, died, Ben-Hadad, his son, became king in his place. And then Jehoash, which is the same as Joash, the son of Jehoahaz, took again from Ben-Hadad, the son of Hatziel, Uh, the cities that he had taken from Jehoahaz, his father, in war. Three times Joash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. Thus far in the reading of God's word, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would indeed open the eyes of our hearts this morning, that we would behold the wonderful things that you have for us in your law. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned, 
uh, sort of the pivot point for uh, our way into this passage this morning is verse 23. This is coming to the exiled community. As I said uh, before we read the scripture, you know, they're asking the question, is there any hope for us? Here we are. We're in Babylon. We're in Assyria. Uh, it, will you remember us? Will you remember your covenant, these promises that you made? And uh, the answer is going to come back to them. God has been faithful all the way back from the time of Abraham. Even when you have been unfaithful, God has been faithful, and he continues to remain faithful up until this present moment. That's what the until now says. Uh, that particular little grouping of words is used nine times uh, in 1 Kings, and every time it means up until this present moment. There's no threat with that. We read it in English, and it sounds like, well, until now, but now God's over with it. That's not what he's saying. Uh, he's saying God has been faithful and has been even up till this present moment, and we can depend on him to be faithful. But there is, a, there is a picture that's painted here for the people of God, both on uh, what the way of death looks like, like how did we end up here in exile, as well as what the way of life looks like. In some ways, if you want to put this in New Testament terms, it's like why was the cross necessary and what is the hope of the resurrection? So I want to walk through that with you this morning. Uh, first of all, let's start on the way of death. And we'll look at this first little narrative here where we see Joash, who is, I think, the third from Jehu. It's actually been a long time. Elisha has been around a, a long time. It's been 45 years since he anointed Jehu, which was the last time we saw Elisha in 2 Kings 9 and 10. And... Um, uh, it's been 45 years. We haven't heard a lot about him, actually, during this time, which is kind of interesting in and of itself. It's just a reminder that we have periods of our life that are more outwardly significant than others. Uh, some of you maybe feel that. I, I know as we grow older, sometimes we feel like, what, what am I doing here? Like, what's my life about right now? Does it have any worth or does it have any value? And uh, one of the things that we see throughout scripture is that while we have uh, sometimes more or less significance, uh, our, our life in the Lord is always crucial. And, and God is continuing to work in us even up until our old age. And, and here we see Elisha as a very old man but it's important that he continued his relationship with the Lord so that when this particular king came to him, he was ready to give him the word that he needed at that particular time. And, and what he told him was, uh, make sure that you're putting your faith in Yahweh. So I, I framed it this way. We're talking about the way of death. And the way of death is, first of all, it's a misplaced faith. And this is what we've seen all throughout these stories uh, as Israel from time after time again. This is the northern kingdom that we've been looking at. So from the time of Omri through Ahab, through Jehoram, through Jehu, Jehoahaz, Joash, all of these kings uh, 
every single one of them has not trusted in Yahweh. Even when they did some good things like getting rid of the Baals, they continued to walk in the sins that Jeroboam, son of Nebat, had caused them to sin, worshiping the golden calves at Bethel and Dan, and they would not trust in the Lord. And the same thing is true even with uh, this prophet or this king Joash here as he comes. Now you maybe notice that as he comes he uses the phrase my father my father the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. There is a connection here between the passing of Elisha and the passing of Elijah. If you remember when Elisha saw Elijah go up into heaven he said these same things. Uh, My father my father the chariots of Israel and its horsemen and we said at that time Uh, What he was acknowledging was that it was the prophet who was the hope. It was the word of God in the mouth of the prophet. It was the, uh, the covenant faithfulness. The prophets were always testifying to the covenant faithfulness of God. That was Israel's hope. And so when Elijah was being taken up, Elisha said, That was our hope. You know, that is our hope, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. We saw it in 2 Kings chapter 6 when the servant of Elisha looked out and saw the enemy surrounding the city of Dothan. And he said, oh my goodness, we're going to die. And Elisha said, no, open his eyes. And he saw the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And he recognized that the hope was not in what he could see on the ground, But the hope was in the word of God that existed with the prophet. And what we see here is a king who is feeling the loss of chariots and horsemen. If you look back in 2 Kings 13 verse 7, you realize that Israel has been decimated in war. And here it says, Jehoahaz, who is Joash's father, Uh, did not have left an army of more than 50 horsemen and more than 10 chariots and 10,000 footmen, for the king uh, king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like the dust at threshing. So Joash was feeling this loss, and he's going to Elisha sort of as a last ditch effort again. There hasn't been much in the way of seeking out the prophet, at least that we've been told about in the 45 years since Jehu was anointed king. And he's going and he's saying, how are we going to win? The chariots and horsemen of Israel are gone. And Elisha, you can tell that he's asking a question because Elisha gives him an answer. And he gives him an answer in means of this bow and arrow thing where he he says, take the arrow and shoot it. And I love the picture that's here. You have old, feeble, weak Elisha, uh, the one who you, you would never look at him and say, that's where our victory is, because he seems weak and feeble. But as his hands rest on the king of Israel, and he says, shoot the arrow this way, he said, you will have victory. And this is the first thing that Israel needs to see about itself, is that they have continued to walk this path time after time again of misplacing their faith. 
when they should have had faith in God's word, in God's faithfulness, in the prophets, all of these things, they continue to look to what they can see on the ground, the chariots, the horsemen of Israel. Uh, They misplace their faith. They look to things like military might. They look to politics. They look to Uh, the abundance that the land can yield. These are the things that they look to. And this is where we often find ourselves in solidarity with them because these are the things we are tempted to look to. We look to the things that we can see. We look to the balance in our 401k. We, We look to our purchasing power. We look to the significance that we have through our job. We look through uh, our relationships and how many people seem to like us and appreciate us and all of those things. We look to what we can see on the ground rather than putting our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And part of the reason why we can see this is you see how the story carries out. You realize that the king will not sell himself out to what Elisha is proclaiming to him. Elisha proclaims to him complete victory over Syria. Can you imagine that? I mean, here is this king who's got barely 50 uh, horsemen and a couple chariots to string together, and and Elisha is saying, you are going to have complete victory over the Syrians. And, uh, and, and then he, he goes on with this little illustration. And arrows were oftentimes uh, used as illustrative of victory for kings, whether they be Egyptian or Assyrian or anything like that. We see in some of the extant literature that arrows will be pointing to the north, south, east, and west to signify complete domination. And, and so Elijah, or Elisha says to him, take up the arrows and strike the ground. Now, most likely he was pointing to a quiver of arrows that was near. Uh, quivers of arrows had uh, probably five to eight arrows in them. And so Jeho- or Joash takes up the quiver and he either like strikes the ground with it this way or the word for strike could also mean shoot. He, he maybe shoots Uh, three arrows into the ground from his place, and then he stops. And Elisha is like, oh my word, what are you doing? Uh, You know, you should have shot all six arrows. You should have completely exhausted uh, the arrows that were there. But this was part of Israel's story. Even when they did acknowledge the Lord, it was never wholeheartedly. You know, not only did they so often misplace their faith, but even when there was faith there, it was sort of half-hearted. We're going to strike the ground three times instead of five or six times. We're going to shoot three arrows instead of the whole quiver. Uh, They're not throwing themselves completely on the promise of the Lord that seems absolutely unbelievable at that present moment. And again, I think this is a place where we find solidarity with the people of Israel. Uh, we, we even sang it, you know, uh, help my unbelief. Uh, when we were singing, pass me not, O gentle Savior, we relate to the man in the New Testament that says, I believe, help my unbelief. We just struggle with that wholehearted sort of thing. One of the ways that I was thinking about that this week was, Uh, Romans chapter 6, 
the verses uh, in 6 to 11. These aren't all the verses, but here's what it says. We know that our old self was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin that lives in us might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. So we must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in, uh, alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, that is powerful truth that is there in Romans chapter 6, right? You, know, you must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to Christ or alive to God in Christ Jesus. But how often do I not sort of sink my teeth into that? How often do I uh, easily succumb to the temptations that assail me in the flesh, whether it's pride or unbelief or worry or anxiety, you know, all of these different things. We don't really, we don't really, we're so much like Joash. He's like, I'm going to give you victory over Syria. And Joash is sort of half-heartedly hitting the ground three times. And, and, and I find that I just have such solidarity with uh, this king in this way. And, and this was one of the things that God was showing Israel. Like, not only do you believe you know, misplace your faith, but even when you do look to me, it's only half-hearted. I'm asking you to believe, to throw yourself on me, to lay hold of the promises that are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Some of you have seen, uh, we've been putting this little quote from Martin Luther. We have prayer meeting coming up this, uh, this uh, Wednesday, or prayer time together uh, with the church. And you know, one of the things that Luther said about prayer is prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, but it's laying hold of his willingness. That, that is just such a powerful and, and it's such an attractive promise. I mean, you think about what God has promised us that we can, we can navigate the trials of life with joy, with patience, with long-suffering. Uh, th this is all the fruit of the Spirit, right? And he has promised us that we can do that, that we, you, we don't have to be angry people, that we don't have to be despondent, that we don't have to be consumed by worry or anxiety, that, that God will actually give us peace. Are we laying hold of that promise? Or are we striking the ground three times? Uh, rather than enthusiastically grabbing all that has given us and said, yes, yes, yes. You know, that's the picture that is here for Israel. But then God comes back and he says, despite all of that, despite your misplaced affections, despite your half-hearted uh, devotion, I haven't forgotten you. I haven't forgotten you, and there is life, because I have always been faithful, going back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, going back even further from the very beginning when Adam sinned, God was right there pursuing them, covering their nakedness, promising a Savior who would uh, crush the head of the enemy. Uh, God has always been faithful 
to provide a way out. And the death of Elisha reminds us of that. You know, it's interesting, with both Elijah and Elisha, we see this uh, power over death. Uh, or power through death over the grave. Uh, with Elijah, we certainly saw that. He, he didn't die, one of two people. Uh, Enoch was the other. Enoch walked with the Lord and was not. Elijah was taken up into heaven uh, in the sight of Elisha, and, and he did not die. There was a power over death that these prophets had. With Elisha, he did die, uh, but when he was put into the ground, uh, into this grave, probably a grave similar to what Jesus was buried in, where there's a cave in the side of the hill uh, with a stone across it. So these people then were out burying uh, another gentleman who passed away, and they were near Elisha's grave. They see this band of Moabites come in and so they are like quickly we've got to get out of here so they open the tomb throw the body in and it happens to be Elisha's tomb and and he comes back to life Uh, when the bones the body touches the bones of Elisha it's reanimated and he walks out can you imagine uh, being the people who tossed him in can you imagine being that guy uh, who was dead and then came back to life Uh, It's an incredible story about the power of the prophet, the prophet who had the word of God. It was an incredible story about life that comes through the grave. And this is where, of course, we see the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Elijah and Elisha were prophets that pointed to the great prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ. Elijah was John the Baptist, the forerunner. You know, Jesus says uh, he is crying out like Elijah in the wilderness, but one has come who is greater than Elijah, speaking of John the Baptist. And we have already said over the course of our study that as we look at Elisha, I mean, he is the one who made axe heads walk on water. He is the one who raised dead widows' sons. He is the one who threw feasts for Gentiles. He is the one who who prefigured the Lord Jesus Christ, who did all of those things over the course of his life on earth. And as he goes into the grave, and out of his grave comes life, we see so clearly the Lord Jesus Christ, because he too went into the grave, but then through the grave comes life and resurrection and comes uh, the promise uh, of life forevermore. But not only in the, in the distant future, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life here, now, in the presence, grab hold of it and Allow this truth to sink deep into your heart and become the foundation on which you're living out your life. Sink your teeth into it. Grab hold of it, not half-heartedly, but wholeheartedly. Hold on to the resurrection. I I love uh, the way that uh, Wendell Berry, some of you know his writings, he has a poem called Manifesto, the Mad Farmer's Liberation Force, something like that. And, and he, he puts all of these things in there that, that don't make sense. He says, uh, you know, 
every, every day do something that doesn't compute, doesn't make sense in this present world. Uh, give your approval, even if it's not something that you totally understand. Ask questions that have no answers. Laugh. Be joyful, though you have considered all the facts. I mean, think about that. We have all sorts of information. We have all kinds of facts at our disposal, and sometimes it's difficult to be joyful. I mean, Joash was looking out at Israel with so little horsemen and chariots. How, How could he be joyful? Be joyful, though you have considered all the facts. And then he ends his poem by saying, practice resurrection. You know, when we find a truth that is so life-changing as resurrection, we, we need to practice it. It needs to, be, uh, it needs to be woven into everything that we do day in and day out. When you are dealing with your boss at work or your teacher in school or your, your friend who just doesn't seem to understand you and is constantly uh, making things difficult, practice resurrection. What, is it, what does it look like uh, to, to be the, the risen person, the one with the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, practice resurrection because God is, is doing this reanimating work in your life. You know, when we are, are facing a, a medical condition, what does it mean to practice resurrection in that, to hold on to the fact that this body is not the end? And, and though it does uh, suffer with the illnesses and the vagaries of life that, that bring us down, it, it's not the final word. There is a word through this. It's a word of reanimation, of life, of, of resurrection. So resurrection is the starting point for, for what it means to really live as people in exile with hope. You remember the prophet Jeremiah came to the people in exile and says, you know, live presently with hope. Build houses, cities, pray for the people. How do we live in the midst of a culture of death? You know, in the midst of a culture where there is political warring and upheaval, cultural, all of these things that are going on, we look out and we see so little hope. But Christ comes to us and says, practice resurrection. You are in the midst of exile, but the final word is not the culture. The final word is not the politics. The final word is resurrection because I went into the grave and came out of it again. Leslie Newbegin says this. He says, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the beginning of a new creation, the work of that same power by which creation itself came to exist. We can decline to believe it. We can take it for granted that we only have the old creation to deal with, or we can believe it and take as the starting point for a new way of understanding and dealing with the world. Practice resurrection. Is this your starting point? Is this how you are viewing the world? You know, sometimes we, we see the cross 
And I didn't, it's interesting to follow the history of that. You know, the cross didn't really become the symbol of Christianity until uh, much later, like at least the 300s, maybe even later. Uh, before that, though, when you read, if you go back and even read the, the New Testament sermons and Acts, they always focused on the resurrection. Uh, it was the resurrection, like this was the truth that is to animate our life. And that's what Newbegin is saying here. Uh, make that the starting point. So as you look out into this week and as you're facing whatever you're facing, you know, resurrection is the filter. It is the thing that we push it through. Your relationships, your health, your finances, all of those things push it through the filter of resurrection, and then it will be joy unspeakable. I, you know, I think about what, what does this world need more than anything? Uh, day by day, we, we need hope. Uh, remember Barack Obama had that as his, you know, campaign slogan, you know, hope. Uh, because it connects with people. Uh, we need hope when our music stands go down. We need hope uh, in, when everything is falling apart in our culture. We need hope. But the resurrection is the hope that we need. Uh, I love the way that Keller puts this in his book, The King's Cross, uh, talking about what the finished work of Jesus has accomplished for us. He says, resurrection is the promise that God makes everything right, that everything sad becomes untrue. When we look at life through the filter of resurrection, you will find that the worst things that have ever happened to you will in the end only enhance your eternal delight. Think about that. Through resurrection, the worst things that have ever happened to you or will ever happen to you will only enhance your eternal delight. That is, a, that is a perspective that our world just absolutely does not have. Uh, but this is the promise of resurrection, that your world will be turned inside out and that you will know joy beyond the walls of the world. The joy of your glory will be that much greater for every scar that you bear. So live in the light of the resurrection and the renewal of this world and of yourself in a glorious, never-ending, joyful dance of grace. Brothers and sisters, that, that's the invitation. You know, when we come together, uh, it, it, this is not religion. This is not you do and you get, you follow the rules and you'll be okay. This is the promise of a God who has gone through the grave and has risen again and is promising Life, joy, peace, all of the things that we so desperately, desperately long for. And so I say to you, brothers and sisters, where are you? You know, I, I, have you surrendered your heart? You know, say, like Israel in exile, we look and we see ourselves. What are we hoping in? You know, what is the attitude of our heart? Is it complete surrender? Or, or are we holding back to some degree? Uh, the promises are unreal. 
The promises are amazing. They're almost unbelievable. But that's where the Holy Spirit comes in and he connects us. He connects us to the promises that are yes and amen through our crucified, but through our resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me as we ask the Lord to continue to open our hearts? Lord, we do pray that you would help us to see uh, the power of the resurrection, uh, the power of the promises that are yes and amen in Jesus. Lord, as we uh, complete this study of Elijah and Elisha, may we realize that these are not just fairy tales from people a long time ago, but these are living, breathing words of the prophet that point us to the great words uh, in the life of the prophet who is even the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would help us uh, in the midst of our unbelief to more and more sink our roots deep into the promises that you have given us. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen.